This is the Catholic Disinfo Hour, celebrating its second year of weekly production. The Rundown is a collaborative Catholic news and opinion show endeavoring to expose and mock the Build Back Better New World Order in both civil society and the church. We've correctly predicted lockdowns, mandates, elections, and public frauds of all manner. Covidians hate us, normies try to ignore us, and fake news organizations wish they could be us. This is The Rundown. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com sent this tweet, quote, having lost in Afghanistan the graveyard of empires, the regime's next military adventure, invading Russia in winter. <laughs> Imagine no felt banner. It's easy if you try. To prepare ourselves for the beauty of the readings and the uh, deep teaching of Jesus, let's prepare ourselves with a beautiful in-breath. And let's breathe out our preoccupations and our projects and our worries, our plans. We become very simple in God's presence. Let's take another big breath. And we feel ourselves enter a silence that leads us into the mystical dimension of our faith. Take that third breath. And on the out breath, we sink deeply into the depths of our hearts. From that place, we cry out beautifully and tenderly in song for the Lord to touch, bless, and transform us in just the way we need God's help the most.
Friday night edition. The Fab Four are assembled. James is running late. He'll be joining us soon, but we're grateful to be joined by Peter from Vonday Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I have to read from my cell phone tonight because the number of topics that we have to get through are so numerous. Supreme Court, we're going to be talking about who's going to fill Stephen Breyer's seat. Bishop Barron versus Bishop Filet. The two religions face off this week on Twitter. Can't Canadian Spring? There's a Canadian Spring happening right now. Are you aware of this? There are tens of thousands of truck drivers that are saving Western civilization. Public school is a mortal sin segment. Always a fun time. Uh, healthcare cover-up, duh. Um, but we need to go straight to England, where our friend uh, Von Day Radio is sitting. Is Bojo going to resign? Yes, yeah, so I'm currently burning the midnight oil. I've just come off the um, the tiles in London after a, a talk from Professor Thomas Pink, who viewers might be aware of, a uh, Catholic academic in, uh, in London. Regarding Boris, I think he's, he's clearly um, not long for uh, his, his political uh, tenure. There's the horizon of the local elections in okay. May of this year. And I think that's what's at the forefront of um, Conservative MPs' minds when they consider their own position with the the funding that accompanies uh, having uh, Tory councillors and so on. So at least at a superficial level, uh, that's that's the kind of primary considerations and why there's this enormous pressure uh, mm. for Boris um, to be ousted. Um, as far as my own perspective goes, um, the old saying, cling close to nurse for fear of something worse. The nurse we're talking about here is a particularly abusive nurse. Uh, you know who uh, uh, forgets to feed us and uh, uh, does does all sorts of horrible things, but the kind of figures that are waiting in the wings with their connections to the the global um, the global technocratic power yeah. structure are are uh, almost demonstrably worse. Yeah, so well, we, we certainly saw that in the United States in the state of New York. Uh, when they sacked uh, Cuomo, and then we got uh, the Wicked Witch from the East. Uh, here's Bojo under attack in Parliament. Brexit and the soaring cost of living have pushed millions of families into poverty. The impending national insurance tax hike hangs like a guillotine while they eat cake. This is nothing short of a crisis. And the only route out, the only route to restore public trust is for the Prime Minister to go. How much longer 
will Tory MPs let this go on for? How much more damage are they willing to do? It is time to get this over with. Show the Prime Minister the door. Prime Minister. Uh, well, Mr. Speaker, I, I, I don't know where, uh, who's been eating more cake. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I would say to that. What I would say to the, uh, to the right honourable gentleman, for whom actually, Mr. Speaker, I have a, I have a, a behind the scenes, people don't get this, but actually uh, we cooperate well uh, and I want to continue uh, to do so. Well, I, it, it is debatable who eats more cake. Hey, for the record, uh, <laughs> I, she, she never said let them eat cake. That's just a Protestant lie. Actually, it had nothing to do with Protestants. It's um, uh, ropes. And no, Rose Pierre. Um, no, yeah, yeah. Rose Pierre in his notes uh, adds that in and the first reference to it in any text uh, or any account of the French Revolution, it's not till twenty twenty five years later that uh, <clears throat> that that gets uh, attributed to to Marie Antoinette. So it's yeah. We just uh, we want to defend Marie Antoinette here on the on the rundown, especially since we have a European and we're feeling very uh, refined this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what, what do you think, Ryan? Uh, do you think do you think uh, the the person who's going to replace Bojo is uh, as as uh, Mr. Von Day Radio has has so eloquently said probably going to be worse? I think it's almost a certainty. And if we, I mean, just look at so Theresa May departs and in, in this uh, disastrous controversy that, and then you get uh, unless I'm entirely mistaken, you got Bojo and who promised I'm going to deliver. Uh, the era of peace and Brexit and prosperity for uh, for all Englishmen, for all everyone in the United Kingdom. What does he bring? Uh, ten times more chaos. And a lot of some friends that I have um, not, not Peter didn't say this to me, but others did. That uh, it's like we got uh, Boris Johnson and we got Brexit, and then it's like we got something ten times worse uh, as a punishment yeah. for having done it. So I think whatever happens after Johnson, it, it, if you recall what I said last week about Johnson lifting up the uh, restrictions over the, uh, Fauci, the Fauci diapers and the uh, the Magavax and the Branded Booster and all these sorts of things, if uh, it, and I predicted then they're only doing it so they can you know let everyone see, ah, good, that's over with. Then the next scariant, the next whatever it is, made up or real, uh, mm-hmm. might even be real. And then they say, see, we're going to clamp down again. And you'd be right back to where you were before. Right. And I think it's the same type of thing with whoever's going to replace Boris Johnson will be the exact same thing. Uh, I suppose suppose that's probably in the works, but we should ask Peter how you're enjoying your newfound freedoms, however short-lived they may be. Isn't it nice to be free again? Isn't it nice that all your rights come from the prime minister? I I savor every single one. Um, I would say I paid as much attention to... Uh, these winter, this winter's restrictions, as I did uh, the last lockdown and the lockdown before that, and the lockdown <laughs> before that. Uh, what I did appreciate is that the the psychological pressure that one observes in the public square is uh, it has been much less in the in the last few months. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 encouraging to see that most British people follow the regulations as far as they do follow them for fear of the the coercion that goes with it, not out of fear of the Omicron variant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which and I was in Germany last weekend, uh, which uh, I, I um, was able to sort of visit illicitly uh, by crossing the border from Luxembourg. And it's a totally different picture there. There, 90% of the people 
believe there is a pandemic. Um, so, so the information landscape is very different. And I'm very grateful for the, wow. the kind of inheritance of uh, the, the vestigial instinct for Anglo-Saxon liberties that, that lingers uh, among the British people still. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, being accompanied in big box stores when you're shopping to make sure you don't buy anything unauthorized. Today, big box stores that have a footprint of 1,500 square meters uh, or more are going to have to ask people, customers, to show proof of vaccination. Now, pharmacies and grocery will be exempt from this. So if you're going into a Costco or a Walmart or something like that, where you might be going in uh, to buy groceries or visit the pharmacy, uh, in that case, an employee will have to be with that person as they walk through the store to make sure that they do not go uh, and buy other products or other items that might be in the store now now gentlemen europe appears to be awake although as peter has noted it's not uniform for example you have this uprising You even have people in D.C. now. So we're here to rise above that. And I also want you to know, uh, spoiler alert, freedom wins. But what I want to ask you each, and I'll start with you, Brother Martin, is whether or not the narrative is actually collapsing uh, under the weight of popular uprisings, if any of these folks taking to the streets and demonstrating are making a difference and actually changing anything, or if their reaction was expected and uh, the, the global technocrats, uh, who are really just communists, are uh, just waiting for their next move. I'd, I'd wager that it's the latter more so than the former, because how many years have the March for Life been marching and still that hasn't cracked? I mean, movements, marches, and... Like in the examples that you gave in the videos, they do a lot to build a lot of enthusiasm in people uh, to make them realize that the movement is bigger than just themselves, uh, to get them pumped up, inspired, to go back home, to build a movement there at home. Um, but as far as the narrative goes, as, as we've seen from uh, what Peter says, I mean, in Germany, they have a different source of information. I think really what, what we need is a rundown podcast in all the five major languages, uh, European languages, all that kind of stuff. So we really, we really get the truth out to, uh, mm. to as many people as possible. Um, but it, it's, it's true that, um, I personally, I believe that the bureaucrats, they had a goal, um, and, and this was just moving them closer to goal that they knew eventually they'd have to give in to people and their freedoms because they can't control everybody. Um, all they could do this is, is a some sort of psyop. Um, and this is just one step closer to whatever it is, whatever end game that they had in mind. Yeah. I suspect that uh, the four of us are going to have that similar opinion. I'll go. I'll go to Peter with Vande Radio. Which, by the way, Vande Radio is a fantastic podcast. You find it on YouTube. Um, are you in podcast form as well, uh, like audio only? No, I'm slightly remiss that I've not uh, updated uh, to that format as well. Um, suffice to say, I have all of the the uh, files ready to go. So um, as soon as there's any kind of YouTube clampdown or anything like that, then. Uh, yes, I will be um, appearing on al uh, alternative platforms as well. Ah, copy. I know people so, have requested it. 
Your thoughts on the question, though, are we are we just seeing them uh, pull back uh, on purpose? Uh, is this a pre-planned uh, temporary withdrawal by the global communist forces or are we actually making a difference by holding up banners and walking in the streets? So I think all of those points that you you just made there uh, have validity. I think that they do genuinely the oligarchs consider how the people are responding to their machinations. Um, I mean, clearly their their goal to advance a new social architecture, a new civilizational model, the fascial injections for the digital ID, for the control grid, uh, has has made significant advances, um, perhaps not as much at this stage as they envisioned, but they can bank their wins. Um, and just like 9-11 saw the advent of the homeland security state, uh, the uh, the the COVID crisis has has led to the the biomedical state, uh, and those, um, you know, the 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 legacy of that will be with us to to stay. Um, but nevertheless, I think that people's opposition is having an effect, and they have to adapt uh, to those things. Uh, I received quite an interesting email today, which said that in response to the um, this bizarre volte face in England, this sudden overnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. switch of the narrative just just suddenly ending covid in the united kingdom someone said to me that they find it very curious and that um the resistance to the injections is having an effect they probably they have much better information than we do about uptake and so on and they uh, suggested that the hawks of the revolutionary forces are taking over that we should prepare for war mm-hmm. uh, we're seeing the fulfillment of many prophecies day by day um so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's only going to get more dramatic, really. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Ryan, um, Peter argues that it's both and. Um, I usually frame things as an either or. You think he's probably right that, well, you know, that we are making strides, for example, in Canada? Yes and no. So we're, we're making strides. We're also losing back, uh, you know, to the technocratic overlords. So wherever it's not government uh, enforcing these types of things, um, it, it becomes the tech overlords who are enforcing it. Because you see, for example, with the Canadian uh, caravan, which actually is estimated to be the largest uh, caravan in, in, in world history, right? Uh-huh. And where it's at right now, it is estimated to be that large. And of course, Trudeau just you know plays it off as ninety percent. Magically gets the uh, the Wuhan devil and uh, disappears for five days while this is all going down. Surprise! But the technocratic overlords haven't gone away, so they are blocking the you know donations people are sending in on GoFundMe. They're doing their best to to block and monitor uh, along the um, you know the, the tech social media and everything that people are using to network. Because uh, you got to remember, the social media is an enemy weapon system. It has its uses. It has things we can do, such as this program and so many others who are working to tell the you know to give good information on it. But at the same time, we have to realize what it is. And so the tech overlords haven't gone away. That would kind of be my biggest takeaway from like uh, you know in Canada and and whatnot. And don't forget too, uh, the Canadian government has in the past documentably put in uh, an agent provocateur or several of them into mm-hmm. crowds of protesters mm-hmm. in order to trigger a clampdown by uh, government uh, forces. And right now they're actually working out a plan. What if they turn violent? Oh, no. that could, somebody, you know, 
that that could that. never happen in a free society. Some members of Congress have uh, been promoting this theory that the FBI had at least one provocateur in the January 6th mob. Um, can the White House say unequivocally that there were no federal agents who provoked illegal attacks? On well, the- FBI Director Ray has already said that the FBI had no evidence of this baseless conspiracy, and he would certainly know. There's no evidence of that, Ryan. That could never happen. Of course not. Uh, <laughs> except we know it does routinely. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, let me ask the criminal if he committed a crime. Oh, yes. he didn't. Okay. <laughs> but, it's, but it's law enforcement. It's it's government. They could never do such a thing. It's like uh, when you're... Time and time again, they have. When you're applying for a U.S. passport, they ask you, you know, like, do you plan to violently overthrow the government? I wonder how many people have ever checked the yes box. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. In fact, that's why I want this passport. Speaking of the Canadians, though, in the Canadian spring in the winter, uh, these people are so polite, even in their protests. Look at the politeness. Would you be able to tell me um, what, what brings you out here today? I'm out here because I think we have a right to choose whether we want to be vaxxed or unvaxxed. And they try to divide us, but they can't divide us no more because we've become united, both the vast and the unvaxxed people. What do you say to the mainstream media who says that this is an extremist, uh, xenophobic convoy? Do you agree with that? Not you. We're free. We're free to do and choose what we want to do. And that's, as, that's what Canada is about. And yeah. as far as the mainstream media, they got to stop the lying already yeah. because everybody is woken up and know that they are lying and not telling the truth. They're burying themselves. Yeah. And you know, and there's no trust. But we were trust. The grassroots people are trusting each other. They're not looking to the media anymore. All right. If you have one word for Justin Trudeau, one sentence for Justin Trudeau, what is it? You're toast, Justin. If you don't turn, you're toast. All you right. Are. We got to get driving. Thank All you so right. much. Thank Can you. I get your name? Can I get your name? Luann, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. You're toast, Brother Martin. If toast. you don't shape up, you are toast. <laughs> That's my message to you. You know, what American, what American on the street protesting anything would say, you're toast. You know, you know <laughs> we're, we're tired of the fake news already. Everyone is awake to it. You need to behave already. <laughs> no, it's true. It was, it was, it was very polite. Um, and the way they prevent, presented themselves, all that kind of stuff. Um, I guess a lot of our protesters are are younger, um, and and classless. And class, you're you're right. They're, they're, we're just I guess. shameless. We're just a shameless people. I don't know how the Brits are. I think that I think we uh, we compete pretty well with the Brits in terms of vulgarities and and whatnot. Um, but well, in Italy, I used to, when I used to live in Italy, I always loved that they always had torches whenever they pro- they protest like every week, something every week, especially right. the the metro line. They have the shopero, the the boycotts. There's a, there's a protest, some something every week. Um, so I think in one sense it's a little bit more me- meaningful when it's over here in the United States or in, in Canada, is because it's not really a part of our weekly culture. I think the right. I think the French are are pretty regular protesters as well. I got really excited when I saw this one. This was a this was a, a legitimatist, uh, a, a pro monarchist um, march in France, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. But they probably do this every other Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, they have torches. Uh, they, it looks really serious. They have banners. Von Day flag. There was a Von Day flag. Shout out to Von Day Radio. 
Um, should we make anything of this? Is this just a regular occurrence? Uh, help, help, help us Americans who don't understand how this works. <laughs> yeah, so I was privileged to um, to walk on the the Shark pilgrimage. Um, there's actually two with the SSPX and with the uh, Ecclesia Dei communities that cross paths from Notre Dame de Paris or what was from Saint Sulpice uh, to Notre Dame de Chart and. Uh, the Le Drapeau Blanc, the the Bourbon flags that you saw there, uh, some of them, the Fleur de Lis, outnumber the Tricolor. If there is a Tricolor, it's kind of redeemed by having a Sacred Heart, a Sacred Cœur in the middle. Um, so Charles Morat talked about how there were two Frances, La Paix Royale and La Paix Légale, how there was Masonic Republican France and how there was Royalist Catholic France. And what you see there are the uh, the remains of... of uh, of the latter um, that are still uh, there's still a lot of vitality there. And uh, to go on something like the sharp pilgrimage is to be among it and to see um, a traditional community, which is, you know, really only comparable on in scale with the traditionalist community in the United States. So uh, yeah, France is the eldest daughter in the church. She's a protagonist in history and uh, you see there uh, the remnants of that. Um, and, uh, just to allude to to meant to um, refer to the Canadian lady that we saw, I thought what's most encouraging about that is how she identified how the media were the problem. Um, you know, heretofore we would have had people castigating politicians as charlatans, but they might have still considered the the uh, um, the press as the the garrulous fourth estate who are uh, who are arbiters of uh, democracy and. And so on, but now people are starting to realise that the media itself is part of the power structure and is also malevolent, and uh, that's encouraging to see. Well, uh, Pope Francis uh, has agrees with you. He, in fact, is chastising quote disinformation on vaccines and COVID nineteen eighty four in parentheses is a violation of human rights. In a speech today, breaking news, he uh, praised fact-checking and urged truth. Ryan, it looks like um, it looks like Pope Francis agrees with with uh, the lady in Canada, or, or am I am I getting that backwards? <laughs> I it's like who wrote this for him? Did he write that himself? Uh, maybe he did. I, I don't know. All I can say is, uh, and what basis is it? human right to not have information coming from other, you know reputable doctors many with nobel prizes who say the opposite of what the corporate the pfizer corporation happens to say mm-hmm. uh, or uh, the branded administration or you know go on down the line right that this it, it plays us right into the language that's being given out by the corporate and government interests so once again the pope is ba- basically speaking power to truth <laughs> Yeah, right. Return the um, it, you know, speaking speaking of ecclesiastical uh, items, this one sort of came into the news feed. I know it's an older article, Brother Martin, but seminarians, oh boy. seminaries <laughs> are having a hard time figuring out if they have biological males enrolling in the seminaries. Uh, there have been some biological females who are admitted to seminaries. We call we used to call them cross dressers, and before that we called them uh, people with mental problems. Uh, today they have new words, which I won't even dignify. Um, some rectors of seminaries, brother Martin, are struggling with how do we how do we uh, 
identify the, the the right gender of the people that were admitting. Well, once upon a time, it was a simple solution. It was in the showers. You figured everything out. Uh, but apparently uh, a certain media group doesn't allow those kind of showers anymore. Um, but it also gives testimony to the kind of pe- personalities, the kind of characteristics that vocation directors and seminary rectors and spiritual yeah. directors in the seminaries are accepting is the fact that they're accepting the kind of biological male that you can't tell any different from a, from a biological female. There, therein is the problem. If someone is so incredibly effeminate and has mannerisms that are a little, you know, limp wristed, et cetera, et cetera, and, and the seminaries aren't rooting those kind of people out, well, then, of course, these people are going to get pretty far in their seminaries. Um, mm-hmm. they, they do ask those weird questions. I mean, I've, I've gone through the, the interview process to, to go into diocesan seminary, all that kind of stuff. And they do ask you, I mean, in fairness to them, they do ask you the questions. Is there anything that we didn't need to know that we haven't yet asked you? And so, you know, it's, it's up to the person to say, yes, there's something that you need to know about me that you haven't asked me um, or for them what just to say, say no. What does it say, though, about, you know, and I, out of fairness to the panel, I'm just I speak for myself. But for the new religion, what does it say about the new religion that you when you meet a, a member of that new religion, you cannot even tell if it's actually a man or not? I mean, you, you know, there, there's no vetting happening here. We saw this weird phenomenon this week where like half the priests on Twitter in the new religion uh, made caricatures of themselves, drawings of themselves. And that's their new profile picture. And it, it seemed like it happened overnight and they're all doing it en masse together. Like it's like they're all part of some club, some, some uh, you know, secret society, let's say. And, um, and it's just weird. It's creepy. But what does it say about that religion, brother, that, you know, you, you can't even tell whether or not the person is a dude. Yeah, you can't tell whether or not the, the, the priest is a dude. You can't tell whether or not the priest behind that Twitter account is a 15-year-old masquerading as a priest. Um, you can't tell anything because the behavioral uh, aspects are, are all the same. You, you, can't dis- you can't actually distinguish a real man behind the collar. You can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of the – I mean, we, we want to reform of our seminaries. We, we want to get past the, the, the clerical scandals, et cetera, et cetera. But we're, no, we're not making any demands on what a real man or what a real priest is. There's, there's no definition. There's no expectations. There's just uh, people willing to submit to authority, to be punished, uh, to, 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 to be obedient when they're, when they're punished and given sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. And that's it. Um, yeah. there, there's actually been no real, uh, there's no real advancement in, in seminary programs to actually uh, make a real man in seminary. Now, it, uh, this, this leads kind of nicely into the Bishop Barron versus Bishop Filet thing. So I'm going to play you a video. We'll, we'll all react to it. I'll start with Ryan, uh, in which Bishop Barron is arguing that arch-heretic Martin Luther, his real error, the real thing that he did wrong, was he just loved God too much. Either the mystical or the prophetic, right? So mystical is, is experiential. It's often the, the kind of you know, priestly, sacramental side of things. Then there's the prophetic which is very word-oriented, it's challenging, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in almost all the characterizations, Luther falls on the, on the prophetic side of that divide. And indeed, you can find a lot of things in Luther to justify just that move. But Ryrie prompted me to think, I don't know, maybe that's not really adequate to it. That if anything, Luther falls on this more mystical, the, the, the lover side of the equation, you know? Now, why do I say that helped me to see it differently? Well, think about someone now who's in love, who's fallen in love. 
what do they do and what do they sound like? Well, consult the high romantic poets or consult even a teenager talking about his first crush. They tend to use words like forever and only and always. You know, something that's over the top, that's exaggerated in the speech of people who have fallen in love. Okay. Uh, Ryan, I need some snuff. (laughs) (laughs) Get through this otherwise. How do we, this is one of the most, this is one of the most uh, famous bishops in the United States. Uh, He's one of the younger ones. He's a Burdeny Knight. He was ordained in Chicago. Uh, He comes from that entire Chicago mafia. He says that arch heretic Martin Luther, whom uh, George Bergoglio has uh, enshrined in a statue in Rome, uh, just loved God too much. I see to a certain extent what he's getting at, which is a classical thing you find written in textbooks describing the Reformation period, that Luther and so much of the Protestant movement was moving toward a mystical thing that the church was lacking. And it's all bug kiss. I'm sorry. If anything... Uh, the church at the time of the Reformation, the lady were moving more toward a mystical appreciation of the love of God uh, that mm-hmm. the hierarchy may not have been catching up with, but it was still there amongst the lady. You have so many lay associations of the faithful and some with them that are a mix of lady and cler- uh, clergy, like the, uh, the Oratory of Divine Love in Italy. And you have these mm-hmm. in other places. And they were moving forward with... Uh, pushing forward the, the Catholic religion and the reform of the Catholic religion, I might add. Luther, um, you go through all his biographies, the Oxford Dictionary of the, of the English Church, its entry on Luther, would not agree with, um, and this is a Protestant source, by the way, it would not agree with uh, Bishop Barron on this subject. It would actually look at it quite the opposite, that Luther mostly loved himself, uh, spoke in a way that uh, Henry Bullinger said, you know, it may be for a swineherd that would be acceptable, but uh, the prophet of Almighty God, I'm not sure about that one. Yeah. Luther is a complicated personality, don't be wrong. And I don't want to simplify it because, you know, because he was a heretic and uh, started the revolution against Christendom. But at the same time, you know, he's a complicated guy. I, but to say that he, you know, he loved God too much. Don't forget, Bishop Barron, this is the author of The Jews and Their Lies and other such books. This is the guy that told the Landgrave of Hesse that he could uh, be a bigamist if it would help the Reformed faith, if he, would, if he would allow Lutheranism to be the state religion in his electorate in the Holy Roman Empire, right? This is a guy that had, you know, he was very loose with his own morals. Hecka fortiter, he says, sin mightily. But believe all the more is it'll make up for your sinning more mightily. I mean, yeah. somebody who loves God is not going to challenge you to sin more in, in, in an attempt to show how, you know, hey, there's nothing we can ever do to, to save ourselves and God's going to cover us up with your, our, his mercy. So I, this is a big L to use the Twitter language for, for the bishop. I think it's one of those things. That, yeah, I see where he's trying to get at and the, the complexities. I mean, Luther, again, complex character, but that, that's an epic fail on the chart. Yeah, that, that's a big fail, Brother Martin. Um, he loved God too much, uh, Martin Luther. That was his big error. Uh, why do all the worse... Well, I'll save this... Actually, let me ju- let me skip you, brother. Let me go to Peter, because this ought to be easy for a, for a Brit to answer. Why do all the worst heresies in the world come from Germans? <laughs> well, Christopher Dawson famously opined that there was something of the barbarian spirit that lingered in the Teutonic soul. 
Mm-hmm. I think that my own nation has its own um, claim to uh, the contribution to the the heresies that have uh, attacked Mother Church, um, especially uh, nominalism, which uh, kind of started this whole avalanche of revolution uh, in modernity. So, and and indeed, Luther said that uh, referred to Occam as my master Occam. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it's 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 as you say with um, Bishop Barron there. I mean, it's shocking. Uh, it's not shocking. We've long known that Barron is a company man, uh, but this effort to rehabilitate the heresy arc Luther, um, when the whole genesis of his thought is um, a, a quaking fear before the Almighty and a denial of uh, God's loving fatherhood and the replacement of of that image with that of a, um, an arbitrary lawgiver. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's actually a complete inversion of Luther's, uh, theology itself. Yeah. Uh, interesting point. Uh, brother Martin, you know, <laughs> reframing the question compared to today's Vatican II Catholics and compared to today's, especially compared to today's Protestants, Martin Luther's pretty based in a lot of ways. One of the things Ryan said, uh, <laughs> I mean, how far has the apple fallen from the tree? Well, there, there is one uh, story that we all know about Martin Luther and Zwingli, where Zwingli was a- arguing against Martin Luther about the, the, the real presence. And the story goes, is Martin Luther grabbed his knife out of his pocket, slammed it into the, the wooden table and carved into the wooden table. This is my body. So at least Martin Luther believed in the real presence, arguing Which- his... his which that, which that puts him ahead of approximately 74% of American Catholics. I don't know about global Catholics, but I mean, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's ultimately what I was getting at is Martin Luther was far more Catholic than Novus Ordites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, mic drop right here. I mean, th- this, this is what it's getting at it is Novus Ordites. The Novus Ordite church is, is more Protestant than even the Protestants. Well, let's, let's unpack that for a second. So compare what you just heard. And I won't subject you again to the visuals or the audio of uh, Robert Barron. Uh, but compare that to what a bishop should look like and what he should say. And be summarized in one word. We see in the gospel, we don't want him to reign. Nolomuseum regnare. We do not want him to reign. What is amazing in the last centuries is the action of the various states around the world against the East, which is, and that's more, even more amazing, followed by a similar action of the leaders of the church themselves. What happened? This feast, once again, is one of the highest of the whole year. It was a day of obligation. It was a free day. And many states have just erased it. We don't want that feast. What did the church do? In many places, first, they pushed it to the Sunday. 
but already, already in the reform of 62, that is under John XXIII, a lot of elements of this theme have been, we could say, they have degraded the feast. They have taken away the vigil. They have taken away the octave. They have made it a lower feast than Christmas. This feast we celebrate today is older. Yes, it is older than the feast of Christmas. Okay. Uh, Brother Martin, let me stick with you for a second. Do you think that Bishop Fillet, uh, a bishop of the Society of St. Pius X, is now is is a, is, he's publicly arguing for a pre fifty five calendar, which is something that you publish and sell. Um, this is this is interesting because the SSPX is generally known for their staunch adherence to the sixty two calendar and the sixty two missile. Uh, so I think this is this is pretty shocking verbiage coming from Bishop Fillet. No, it's pretty shocking only because I guess it it's, goes contrary to our expectations. Um, but I don't think it's it's shocking if you understand Bishop Fillet, Bishop Fillet to be someone who actually loves the faith and loves tradition. Um, and so to me, it was only kind of a matter of time, I think. I, I've heard a lot about the SSPX and holding on to the 62 only because it contradicts the nine that left and became significant context, et cetera, et cetera, but that they eventually left over the missile. And so they wanted to distinguish themselves from being Sedevacantis by using explicitly the 62. Also, they kind of pair the missile with uh, the canonical obligations of most especially the, the Eucharistic fast, et cetera, from, that was in use in, in 1962. And so they would just want to be congruent. They just want to be you know, in, in unison with, with the missile and the, dis, the canonical disciplines, et cetera. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, it, the epiphany is, is, it is one of the reasons um, that I kind of felt, I first fell in love with the pre-55 because I was like, previously there was an octave, it was a huge thing, it was a Sunday Psalms and our bravery all week long, um, you know, the, the epiphany mass all week long, but then all of a sudden it just dropped and, and, and nothing replaced it. It was just all feria days. It was all feria days. So, so it wasn't like the church had an, a different idea that said, hey, we're going to emphasize this uh, after the Feast of the Epiphany, et cetera, et cetera. But they literally erased it, and on the octave of the Epiphany, they use they actually in the sixty-two is the exact same mass as the octave day of the Epiphany, except they call it the baptism of our Lord because in the in the in the gospel for that the octave of the Epiphany is the baptism of our Lord. So they just changed the name from octave of the Epiphany to the baptism of our Lord. So they, they didn't really do anything with it. They just they just deleted it. It was just delete. But they also, especially in Pretty fifty-five, they 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 had octaves was was a normal thing. Um, with Fide, St. John the Baptist got an octave. The Feast of St. Peter and Paul got an octave. Um, there were so many octaves uh, throughout the year that in 62 came along, and they were all deleted. And so from going from 55 to 62, there was more of a shock of the, the deletion of feasts in the liturgical calendar than there were from the 62 to the Novus Ordo. There was, there was far le- less deletions in, in feasts and octaves and all that kind of stuff. Peter, it's hard for Americans to conceive of the idea that the Epiphany is an older, grander feast than Christmas, uh, because we have commercialized Christmas in the United States so much that Santa Claus reigns, uh, the Coca-Cola version of Santa Claus, to be uh, specific. And so Christmas is really um, one of the high points of the American religion 
and uh and the uh, the epiphany is just relegated to whatever sunday it happens to fall on and no one really knows what that word means is there an appreciation either in the united kingdom or elsewhere in europe for the epiphany that we're just totally missing or has the entire world been wiped away since you know the the 62 changes took it out well i think um the anglosphere well britain in particular the anglosphere in general is obviously most susceptible to american cultural hegemony and influence so we do have the the influence of the the commercialization of the celebration of christmas uh and i i notice when i have been in uh, continental european countries a different tenor and rhythm to the celebration of christmas there and much more of a focus on los reyes the revelation to the gentiles as you say um, so, so sadly, that that has been uh, denuded in uh, this country as well. Uh, it's it's encouraging to hear uh, Bishop Fillet uh, say that. I wonder how much is kind of ecclesial politicking. Uh, what with the possible expectation of a dividend uh, from the uh, suppression of various diocesan latin masses maybe ecclesia day uh, communities as a result of traditionis custodies most people's predictions is that the sspx will uh will um be expanding quite significantly as a result so mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's kind of positioning for that ryan um is it you've been following this for quite a long time do you think it's significant that bishop valet is challenging the 62 calendar or at least critiquing it in public do you think he knew that that video was going to come out or is this you know was it did he have an expectation that this is just private commentary what do you think i honestly can't say as far as what what he intended with this and whether this was something that was um you know meant for public consumption or is meant to be private obviously he's preaching in public in church and so obviously this is you know, something that, that he knows is going to be repeated It's uh, to some extent, if not, you know, put on the Internet. But um, that being said, it's I, I do find it interesting because like the origin, for example, of Sedevacantism in this country was over to, like you said, nine priests. Their, their, their specific issue was the 55 liturgy. They wanted no. to be able to do basically before Bunini started monkeying around with the liturgy. And that's what they wanted to get get done. And so the way that actually went down um, is that uh, Bishop Williamson actually whispered over to uh, the archbishop saying in German, don't listen to these guys, they're idiots. That's just something right. to that extent. And Sanborn was fluent Sanborn in German. Spoke German. Yeah. He spoke German. And Williamson didn't know that. So Sanborn, you know, figure, you know, hears this and he's like, he just tells the rest and Chagata and all them, all right, they're not interested. Let's get out of here. And and that's that's how that uh, originates. And and I think that challenge because what he's saying is in fact a challenge to that orthodox, at least to some extent. And yeah. as it is historically, they've pushed the envelope and doing strictly the sixty-two ceremonial for Holy Week, uh, where they're still setting up an altar outside. Um, they're still facing the altar and not facing the people, as the sixty-two ceremonies suggest, for the distribution of palms where the 62 ceremonies, again, suggest the priest should stand facing the people and they should all say they are father in common. Uh, is an absolute novelty in the Roman Rite, at the very least, since the time of St. Gregory the Great. Um, the SSPX does not do that, even though that's what's in the general ceremonials for 62. The, the major ones, O'Connell, the updated Fortescue, not the old Fortescue, obviously, um, you know, and so on and so forth. 
but this is one of those those things that I think there's always been an uncomfortableness with the fact that they have to do the Bunini Holy Week, which is nothing more than a run through for the Novus Ordo. Oh, and now, so now, just to this restate, this is a logical conclusion. You have to start looking at that question. But I, I want to restate this for people because I think a lot of rundown viewers may not be familiar with the actual history of the split between the Seti Vicantis uh, folks who uh, and and the Society of Saint Pius X folks. And it was over the calendar. It was over this issue, 55, pre-55 versus 62. And exactly as you said, exactly as has been related by so many people, eyewitnesses in the room, that is what the split was over. And um, Archbishop Lefebvre uh, had a, you know, had a stalwart opinion that the 62 was to be followed. Um, and he didn't want to hear any, you know, anything else. And And that is ultimately why, uh, the Sanborn line and others, I think, Brother Martin, you know some of the other lines, um, split out from from the SSPX, and this is this is we're we're, we're seeing the the reaction to that and the reverberations a generation and a half later, and people who are discovering the traditional Latin Mass and the traditional movement. Um, many of us may not know that history, may not understand that, you know. Th- Dates matter and calendars matter and Bugnini matters. And many of us want to have a totally Bugnini free zone in our lives and our, in, in how we worship. And as you said, Ryan, um, the, the, the Bugnini changes to the missile weren't just the Novus Ordo. He started with Holy week and, uh, and he nuked it in the, in the 62. And by the way, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that around the world, we're now seeing that Holy week is going to be, um, you know, uh, chastised. I'll leave that to anybody to pick up. <laughs> no, no, it's true. I mean, it's, 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 it's true. It's, it's the one mass the last three days. Um, the most holiest time of year um, carries with it the, the obligation to receive Holy Communion during the Easter tide, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it is solemnitas solemnitatis, the solemnity of solemnities. Um, without Easter, there's no Christmas celebrations because without our Lord rising from the dead, there's no reason to celebrate his birth because he'd be just an old man if he didn't rise from the dead and, and wasn't actually God. Um, and it, it is it is the focal point. It actually, I mean, you mentioned me creating the calendars. That's actually where I start every single year. I start with Easter. What's the, what's the Easter date? And from there. So uh, it's it really is the foundation of absolutely everything. And so the very fact that that's what they're attacking first and, and, and the rites and the celebrations that really celebrate the Paschal Mysteries, even leading up to it, like we're about to approach up to a step to a Jezima. We begin with the the beginning in, in the breviary, at least in the divine office, we begin reading the, uh, the readings from uh, Genesis and the fall of man. And we go then to Noah uh, and they go to other patriarchs that really explain to us the, the mystery of salvation that lasted hundreds of years for, for, for the Israelites, um, emphasizing our fallen nature and what we really needed, what we truly needed to actually overcome our fallen nature, which was this grace that our Lord, only, only God himself could give us and becoming incarnate. Right. And so that, that, that's really the, the, the focal point is that we are in need of this grace. And so the, the Holy, Holy Week is actually the, the one week where all of that comes together. We have like nine readings, 12 readings um, in, in, the, in the vigil. Um, and, it, and it's all just put together with all of the, all of the cer- ceremonies that actually mean something to help uh, teach us what the whole year is supposed to teach us. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a cram session. Like you, you study, you, you, know, you cram for a, te- a, a final exam. And I, that's kind of what the Holy Week is. It's it's a, uh, the summation of absolutely everything. And so, what, right. in, in order to destroy everything, they have to they have to go to, to Holy Week first. 
Peter, I want to bring you in. I, I just, I find it very ironic that it's the former Ecclesia Day communities that are celebrating the Holy Triduum in the pre-55 manner. Meanwhile, the Society of St. Pius X, which uh, we, we all rightfully ought to be grateful to um, for the existence of the traditional Latin Mass. It may not have existed, but for one man, Archbishop Lefebvre, who I believe will be a doctor of the church someday. Um, but but his order celebrates the Bugnini rite on on the Holy Triduum, and 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 so when you go to the derivatives, the the Ecclesia Dei communities, the FSSP, the Institute of Christ the King, etc., that's where you can find the pre fifty five. Yeah, it's all very confusing, and I think this will be part of the the general um, recovery from the effects of both the Council, but also the currents, the intellectual. Uh, theological currents that were at play before the council. And it's notable that with John XXIII's change to the Roman canon with his devotion to St. Joseph, uh, very laudable though it was, you have documentary evidence of all the the modernists who would go on to um, to uh, reform uh, the liturgy um, w- corresponding with one another saying he touched the canon he actually touched it. Mm-hmm. So that precedent was set. It was noticed. Um, and that, that set the, um, the, the wheel spinning for the, the, the acceleration of the revolution that followed. Um, mm-hmm. So there's, there's so much more uh, to, to work through here. Um, and I think that what I'm encouraged to see is a maturation of the traditional movement where those kind of pathologies at work before the council are being identified and it's not just the case that oh we'll just go back to the 1950s or whatever and it'll be okay actually there's there's all sorts of things that should be Mm -hmm. examined yeah that's an interesting point um let's get back to the broader point though of of you know a side-by-side of baron versus fillet brother martin is it unfair of me to say that it, it appears that there are now two religions and that the gulf is widening between them and we're witnessing that in real time no, it's absolutely true. And, and, you know, you were speaking earlier about these these Twitter priests that have cartoon characters as their faces. I mean, like now it's like we literally have two ex- completely different expectations of what we uh, expect priests to be in public, uh, whether to be fathers or whether to be some sort of um, you know, glorified youth ministers. Um, we really need priests to be priests, to be altar priests, deep side priests, another Christ, Christ himself. And, and of course, when there's offering the sacraments, we ex- we believe that they're that because we theologically we have to but it's really strange that they feel like they can um behave themselves as just simple college students um when they're not celebrating the sacraments you know they wear the traditional vestments of the eternal all that kind of stuff and then they act like college students or teenagers and, and, and stuff like that um more and more and then also like pro-life stuff they really you know they believe that uh, the death penalty is no longer permissible in the Catholic faith, all that kind of stuff. There really is, I mean, more and more, I cannot find common ground. We cannot find common ground with them anymore. Like they're literally touching every single thing that we believe. Um, and then when we do try to find common ground, when they say that they believe in the real presence, we say we believe in the real presence. We find that, that on, on their side, 70% of them, they don't actually believe in it. And so it, it more and more, there, there is absolutely zero common ground between um, those who um follow the the new the new right the new calendar and, and those who follow the traditional right because 
those of us that want to follow the traditional are like we're all discovering the pre-55 is because we're all we're all wanting to, to discover our heritage where we're coming from what has always been we, of course we love the church fathers we also love uh, the scholastics we want to mm-hmm. want to find out what all developed where uh to what we are why we are what we are and that, that's ultimately you know our heritage we you spoke of that last week is that you know communism wants to destroy uh the, this this meaning of tradition of, of, of handing things on of, of culture of um, you know, of, of just inheritance, uh, the Novus Ordites also want to destroy that in us. And, and for them, it's just, oh, what, whatever authority says is true, whatever authority says is true, whatever authority says is true. That, that, that doesn't, that isn't sufficient. Um, only in a totalitarian society is that sufficient, but that's not what Catholicism is. Ryan, help, help us out, help us out, yeah. Ryan, because, because, if I follow this argument to its conclusion, I, I start to I start to think that recognize and resist isn't enough. So Let help, me, me, uh, help me not be a Sadificantist. Right. I don't. Uh, maybe we'll see if I can Good do luck, that. Um, I was going to see. I was going to say that in general, I've always resisted the language of a new religion hitherto. Because I've known lots of priests who were good priests in the Novus Ordo. They believed the faith. They, you look at the councils. You look at what the church has always and everywhere been believed. Everywhere believed um, in, a, in, in taught and what the faithful have held. They believe that. And they're doing the best they can to get people the sacraments where they're at. So I see that. I've, and I've also seen the nutty stuff. So I've always wanted to resist the language of new religion versus contemporary mismanagement. But at present... Um, the very prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship has said they are two different religions. He himself has laid that out there. So who am I to dissent from, uh, you know, the prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship? Wait, who's it? Is it Roach? Yeah, this is Archbishop Roach. Oh, uh, and so it, he basically said they are two different religions. They express mm-hmm. different theologies. And we've always known that all the way back to Taviani. We know that those two masses express two different theologies. And that's principally one of the problems with the, the new right. Uh, so, it, it's not helpful this to the is, church. This but, is an interesting point of, de, of, de, of departure here or of discussion, Ryan, because how do we square the idea that we're talking about two religions that both have the same head, visible head, right. ostensibly, this is right? A, this is a complicated point. Actually, uh, Cardinal Burke said something along these lines last year, was it? I can't remember. Uh, where he's, you know, he was quoted anyway in an article. I'd have to find it for sure. And if if anyone knows, and you know, don't don't be afraid to put a correction in the chat if I if I say it wrong. But that in in supporting the German synodal way, and if he was going to try to make the next synod like the German synodal way and to move in the same you know path that is, that he at one time could be the head of the Catholic Church and the head of a schismatic body at the same time. And how that works in theology is, you know, it, it's still unexplored because uh, the only one I've ever seen talk about it is Suarez, um, where be, because basically the Pope is the supreme expression of the unity of the church. So, you know, your bishop is your microcosm of it. And, you know, his communion with his higher bishop is metropolitan. That's a, that's a further expression of it. But the, the papacy, you know, is all sacerdotal unity is in Peter. So that's the the supreme expression where you can judge a schismatic or not. It is if he's in communion with the the see of Peter, and so. But now you're you know, Suarez says, you know, well, there's certain ways in which a pope too could become schismatic, such as if he'll suppress the sacraments, the means of salvation, such as if he'll, uh, you know, try to you know overturn the you know church's harm souls things of this sort, uh, like in in a very like 
explicit way. I, I, can, I don't have the quote from Suarez on me. And it's one of these things that it is kind of a, a broad statement, a, a passing comment on, you know, so is he saying the Pope can be in schism? Because most traditional pre-Vatican II theologians would say, no, that can never happen because the Pope is the standard by which you judge schism or not. But it may very well be that that's going to have to be looked at and revised in the future according to what actually has transpired. Because like like with the new mass, they actually made a new mass and they promulgated it. And, you know, they actually, you know, the Pope has actually done these things. He actually, you know, is teaching heresy. Whether he himself fully embraces and knows that this is a heresy has to be proved. I mean, we, we can have our opinion on whether that's the case or not, but it has to be proved. If you just read any pre-Vatican II manual on, on uncovering those suspected of heresy, there's got to be a process for that, and that's going to have to be run by a future pope. Um, but that, all that being said, right, there is the definite appearance of two religions. And in the past, I always said it was, you know, between those who believed and those who felt you're following a new religion, in spite of, you know, the new writer, which is supposed to serve it. But now I just I, I look at it. There's just no other way to look at it is that everything they are pushing is the new religion. And we can even connect that with the bishop in Florida doing what for a long time bishops have been doing, banning uh, their priests in the Novus Ordo from saying mass ad orientum, which the, the CDW clarified way back 20 years ago that it was perfectly fine to uh, say mass ad orientum. And that the, the germ was only expressing certain things in terms of expediency and, and the time and place, whatnot, whatever. Um, and yet bishops have said, nope, it's a law of the church. You can't do it. When? Oh, Vatican II taught it. It doesn't teach anywhere in Vatican II that you have to do that. But it doesn't matter. That's the rev. That's the new religion. The idea looking the way, facing the altar like any priest has done throughout the whole history of the church, basically. Uh, with the exception of St. Peter's and churches built an imitation of it where it was west facing, right? Other than that, you always fit you. And even then you're always facing east. So that direction of the priest facing the Lord and the faithful with him is so natural and normal to the Catholic religion until suddenly 1965. It is now outlawed because reasons actually it was never outlawed. That's the new religion and it's going to be pushed whether you like it or not. And the same thing with everything else. It's the new religion they will push in. No contemplative prayer. We don't want contemplative prayer going on. We don't want religious orders booming of vocations. We don't want people sacrificing. We don't want people fasting. We don't want people fasting before communion. We're going to bring that down. And then we'll just abolish that little one-hour fast whenever you get a hangnail. Um, and you look at every last thing that characterizes religion prior to Vatican II, and after, these are the things that are always whittling away whether it's coming from the left in general that's pushing for it or whether it's coming from the top that's allowing it or well, allowing it. It's such a joke, though. I mean, you could be sipping on a vanilla latte you walking walk in. in it, yeah, you could be walking over the latte. You could walk in eating yeah. popcorn or eat it. You could stop at a burger yeah. joint, walk into mass with it, eat it while you're sitting there, and then <laughs> uh, go up to Holy Communion. What, that's, you, that's not a fast. You said facing east, too. That's what it means to orient a church, is to face it towards the orient, otherwise known as the east. Uh, right. Peter, I want to bring you in on this because um, it appears as though even as as recently as today with, uh, you know, Pope Francis sort of saying that he is the head of the COVID religion, that it, it, it does appear as though he is the head of two churches uh, or claims to be the head of two churches. Uh, he, he has unveiled a new sin. Um, it, it's not only a sin to use a plastic straw. Now it's a sin to disbelieve the popular narrative about COVID. Yeah, so I think 
Ryan has made uh, some of the essential theological points, which is what I'd expect from a Bellamine scholar, from a scholar of the School of Salamanca. Um, I think for me, Father Linus Clovis articulated this conundrum, uh, or at least the the something of a way out of this conundrum, a way of understanding this conundrum uh, best when he said, the Catholic Church and the anti-church currently coexist in the same sacramental, liturgical and juridical space. So I think if you see it that way, if you draw a distinction between understanding, uh, between between believing and adhering to the doctrine of papal infallibility as, de- as defined by Vatican I, but also the, um, the, the, the distinction between uh, the, the lack of impeccability in canon law in directing you towards uh, the reception of the faith, um, then, then there's, uh, you know, room for uh, understanding, you know, how this confusion can arise. Um, but I'm afraid that this... Let, let me challenge we- you. Let me challenge you because what, what the SETIs will say, and I, and, and I don't know how to get out of this, is it's called, you know, it's, it's one of the basic principles of logic. It's the principle of non-contradiction. A thing cannot simultaneously be and not be at the same time. You cannot have two things ocu- in physics occupy the same space at the same time. Um, you know, so it's it's a very, very complicated and convoluted thing for the recognized and resistors, those of us, to say that, yes, the church and the anti-church are both occupying the same space at the same time. Um, it seems like it violates logic. What can we, what, what, I mean, how to help us out here? Well, I'm no theologian. I sympathize with that sentiment, certainly. Um, there is a process of discovery. Um, I'm sure Ryan can elaborate Bellamine's thought on that a lot more than I can, uh, but it is not within our comp- my competence as a layman uh, to 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 stand in judgment over the Supreme Pontiff. Um, I mean, Vatican I defined you know the Pope's authority as this this super bishop, um, and so we have the ability to resist, but not to stand in judgment. Just as if someone uh, who had authority of me me in temporal uh, manner was to assault me. I would have the the right, indeed the duty to defend myself, to defend my, defend my bodily integrity, uh, but not to, um, to deny their temporal authority. Uh, and so it's even more so with when it reca- re- comes to spiritual harm. Uh, this week, we've been dealing with uh, the news that several dioceses in this uh, in in Britain have uh, stopped the traditional um, uh, confirmation rites. Um, and uh, this has come very suddenly. Uh, one particular confirmandi uh, is, a, is a girl who I, I, uh, I know um, through the traditional uh, Catholic community uh, suffering from terminal leukemia uh, has uh, two weeks to live um, after her confirmation date. That's been cancelled as a result the bishop's action. So that's the, the gravity of the evil uh, which we're dealing with here. Yeah. Oh, Ryan, I, let me unmute you. Just my response in as much as like, I mean, on the formal stuff of it, I think I said everything that I that I need to say on Taylor Marshall's show about the subject quite some time ago. But yeah. for me as a Catholic, it's as simple as this. Um, I'm going to be Catholic. 
I'm going to adhere to what the church has always never believed wherever and however I can do that. And I'm, you know, because I have not been constituted an authority. Nobody has put me in a position to tell anyone what to do. Nobody has put me in any kind of authority to judge, you know, the Pope or my ecclesiastical superiors. I can certainly judge the things they say and say, yeah, this is not the faith I received from the apostles. This is a problem here. Maybe I missed something. I don't know. So I'm going to stick to what I've always received and what I can find in pre-Vatican II theologians, what I can find that's always been handed down. I'm going to prescind altogether from the question of Vatican II. And I'm going to pray for Christ to reestablish his church and to fix these issues. Because whenever, when the dust settles, nobody yeah. is going to put Ryan Grant into Vatican City and say, you are now in charge of fixing this. That's not going to happen. Actually, it's probably better it doesn't. Um, I, I design and appoint somebody smarter to do it. So I don't I'm know. Gonna... I, I could get I could get behind a Ryan Grant papacy. I could <laughs> Ryan I could both. Both. <laughs> get on the study of Victoria, and I'd get a uh, a, um, a maze, and not a maze. A uh, well, actually, maybe one of the spiked ones, or else you know the Morning Star, the the, the ball yeah. ball and chain with the spikes on it. And then uh, I'd get all the modernist cardinals. Start with the the ones that are clearly guilty of pederasty. So they'd have to pick it up. And as we're going, that would be that would be all so of the next one. Start picking it up. Just keep going until I've got through the whole lot of you. Well, I'm sure the Actually Press would enjoy having access to the Vatican libraries. Huh? Yeah, that, that would be <laughs> you would have substantially less time to translate, Brother Martin. I I tend to agree with Ryan's uh, point of view. It's it's an interesting discussion. It makes for a fun Friday night with friends, you know, having a Negroni and smoking a pipe, which is what I'm doing in 22 degrees down here in the catacombs. But <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really change how my family operates. You know, practically, we have to be Catholic. We have to believe that which has been believed in all times and places by all peoples. As Saint Vincent Lorenz says, we cling to antiquity, uh, no matter what, and that's it. Yeah, you know, and this is kind of the uh, the heresy that the state of the contest kind of fall into. I don't know if it's intentional or whatever, um, but then they, they reorganize the hierarchy. All of a sudden, they themselves are in charge of the church. They get to decide who's validly ordained and who's not. They get to decide who's who the priests go to because they're validly ordained because of this line and who's not validly ordained because of that line, et cetera, et cetera. And so ultimately, they put they place themselves as popes. Um, and that's, that's, that's always the danger of state of ecotism is, is that they, they go around and, and they feel that they personally have to decide or have to uh, have to uh, determine whether or not who's valid and who's invalid, all, you know, et cetera, um, because of, of yeah. some of their theology, which, which is which is kind of nuts um, in a sense of sometimes you'll hear that they'll, they'll go through and, and kind of quote text from this uh, right of ordination from that right of ordination. Um, but in reality, the church is the church. The church has the right to promulgate whatever ordin- uh, right of ordination it wants to make a, any, any valid mm-hmm. right it wants. Sure and simple. I, I recently was smoking a cigar with a man who was referring to the great Father Hess as uh, Layman Hess. <laughs> <laughs> he said Layman Hess was a smart guy and he liked wine, but uh, his arguments were bad. And I'm like, okay, well, who are you to call him a layman? You know, it's like, yeah, what, what you're saying. Uh, at the same time, though, I think, you know, one of the one of the comments here, and I, I want to bring this up on the screen, he says, can we just admit that the recognize and resist traditional Catholics are basically practical set of a contest insofar as they don't listen to this man? Not um, exactly. Not exactly. No, because we go back in history. We don't have social media. No Catholics ever listen to the man. Pure and simple. Right. We'd, we'd have access to, to what the man was saying on a, on a daily basis. So it was impractical to listen to the man. 
oftentimes priests over in Japan didn't even know the Pope died. They were still naming him in the canon. Two years later, they learned that there's a new Pope, actually two Popes later because the other Pope had died. And, and so there, there are two Popes behind. And so these kinds of things are, you know, there, there are exceptions to the rules in, in that case. But the, rea- but the, the reality is if, if, if uh, someone's spouting heresy, I mean, Vatican one define what, what we have to listen to the Pope, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. If we know someone is wrong, we don't have to listen to them if he, if he tweets an error. Guys, we have to talk about the Supreme Court. <laughs> this is something we must do. It's the thumbnail. It's the reason why people clicked on the button. They were like, oh, they're going to talk about the SCOTUS. And we're an hour and 15 minutes in and we haven't talked about the court. Stephen Breyer appointed by, I think it was a Bill Clinton appointee, right? Uh, and he was part of the Watergate prosecution team. So he was summarily rewarded. He's an Oxford grad uh, and I think Harvard Law. Uh, or at least taught at Harvard, uh, as many of them have. Uh, he's retiring now, and he's a he's a he's a pretty consistent liberal, Ryan. Um, he's he's been on the left wing of the bench since 1994. His nomination by uh, uh, the definition of is is uh, uh, slick Willie Clinton. We got to make some predictions. Two predictions, and we'll go around the room. Number one. Will this be World War III? Will this be Brett Kavanaugh 3.0? Will this be, is, 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 he, is anybody going to get bored? Or is this just going to be sort of like with, you know, ACB where she slotted in and no one really knew it and it was just an, an asterisk? That's the first question, Ryan. Second question, Ryan, is uh, since uh, sleepy Joe Biden, fake Catholic usurper in chief, has uh, committed to the racist idea of only finding a black woman to fill this seat, uh, will it be Kamala Harris? All right, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll do the first one first. Um, it's safe to retire from from the court when you know the president. That's more of your persuasion is there if you're committed to that particular vision, right? And then you're like, well, you know, time for me to go. The curious thing about this: the Supreme Court justices rarely uh, retire. Uh, they hold on to that until they're practically, the, you know, on death's door, right? And uh, you know, they, they they've got the, the 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 coffin all ready for them in the office, just in case they feel the need to get in there and die. Like Rehnquist, for example, he didn't have a coffin, but he was at death's door, you know, for years holding on, would not retire, even when uh, you know he had Reagan. I might have appointed someone that would take his place and be of the same mind. So the retirement's kind of curious. I must wonder if uh, sleepy uncle Joe didn't, you know, hear the name Briar and think he had ice cream and find out that he was just a court justice and decided to get rid of him. <laughs> um, but uh, beside that, so that's, that's one, it is odd, but at the same time, you know, it, it's plausible enough just because, you know, Biden's the one who's going to make the next appointment. Then, you know, in terms of is Biden going to follow through, that's the prevailing theory people have. I don't know. Um, People don't like cronyism. And so you remember when Bush tried to name his own personal lawyer uh, under the Supreme Court. And that was one where now she did have serious accomplishments in business law, for example. She wasn't like a complete, you know, uh, uh, dupe. Right. But at the same time, you know, you know, she, she was. It, it was too close to the president and, and it looked bad, you yeah. know, just cronyism. So the same thing, I think, if he appoints Kamala, uh, you know, cop Mala, right, the former <laughs> prosecuting attorney, put so more black people in jail than uh, Joe Biden. 
right? Um, okay, so, so you're saying not Kamala because uh, people will say, eh, that's a little... It could much. very well be. It, it, it's too convenient at so many levels. Um, mm. I don't quite see that. I mean, the left will love it no matter what he does. So yeah. I, I don't think that's really going to be an issue. But the, you, I do not think that we're going to see, no matter what whom he nom- nominates, we're not going to see a Brett Kavanaugh type of you know knockout, dragout fight because Republicans in this country are essentially Democrats in slow motion. And they don't have the fight in them, or very rarely have the fight in them. Uh, the most I ever saw them do was with Merrick Garland, who was a recess appointment. They made sure that that didn't stick. Um, so that's the that's the only thing I can you know see going on here. Merrick Garland's not impossible to go back again, uh, unless they decide he's more effective as the attorney general. Um, my vote actually would be there was a meme going around on Twitter. Uh, the last TV show you watched is the the main character is going to be appointed to the Supreme Court. And the last TV show I watched was a TV show, Castle, which is a, a murder mystery uh, show. Very funny, very witty. And there's a gal in there who's a medical examiner. The actress is Tamala Jones. It's like, you know, why don't they put her on there? Because she's probably just as liberal as anyone else Biden's could have put on. But at least she's easy on the eyes to go up there. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. All right. <laughs> um, Brother Martin, uh, Ryan is saying that this is not going to be a huge World War Three fight. No one's going to be uh, accused of serial rape uh gang banging in high school with the four f's and the calendars and all that stuff uh because that's just not how republicans tend to behave and um so somebody's just gonna you know win a simple majority probably perhaps um you know 51 votes with kamala harris coming to break the tie as vice president um do you think it'll be kamala i think it'll be kamala i don't i don't think so um However, I, I don't. I don't think it'll be a a huge fight either. I think. I think there was a lot behind the the, the justice that decided to resign, only because I think the Democrats realized that they might not have a chance at uh, at the midterms to get enough Democrats in the the Senate to be able to appoint who they want to appoint. So I think they realized this is their only shot. And then, of course, in twenty twenty four, whether or not they're going to re- uh, win the presidency again. Um, so I think they're taking this. Opp- they're seeing that this is a, their last opportunity, their only opportunity to to do something permanent, permanent in a sense of of electing a, a life uh, long justice to the Supreme Court. Um, and so it, the, the fight really depends on how many Demo- Democrats in the Senate um, they w- w- whether whether they they play along the lines with the other Democrats and and mm-hmm. and, and want to elect who the other Democrats want to elect. Right. Well, we know that uh, there might uh, be some that to, want to to oppose. We know that with regards to uh, and, uh, these appointments, um, what's her name in in Arizona? Seneca is that her name? The, who's the, the 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 pervert bisexual woman in Arizona? Uh, she she she's going to vote for whoever. Joe Manchin has come out and said he'll vote for someone who's more liberal than he. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks like they have the votes. They have mm-hmm. fifty or fifty-one votes, so they're going to get whoever they want. And because Republicans made it a simple majority vote to elect a uh, Supreme Court nominee. What goes around comes around. Now, um, Peter, in 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 the United Kingdom, uh, do jobed, wrote, robed jurists, do they wield as much power over your lives as they do here in these United States? Because really, they're the most important people to us. They're more important than the president. Uh, short answer, no, they don't. Um, under the Blair terror, the law lords who were the supreme judiciary in this country uh, were removed to their own separate institution 
known as the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. And um, they have made several landmark decisions, um, particularly with the whole Brexit imbroglio. Um, but it's much more of a closed shop uh, than it is in the United States. It's still a form of political theatre um, and it's still uh, very much, you know, an oligarchic stitch up. Um, and uh, I think that Brother Martin and, and Ryan have already, um, you know, very, very adequately uh, described the dynamics here about how it's a liberal justice retiring under a, a liberal president. So it's it's not so significant as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying under Trump, for example, where there's the opportunity for uh, switching the seat. Uh, I would say that um, Catherine Austin Fitz made an important point about how during the Kavanaugh controversy, uh, there was bipartisan support for the passing of something called, I think it was FAS 52B. I might have got the, the number there wrong at the end, but Essentially, it was a, a, a kind of um, auditing measure which uh, took a lot of the budget dark. Um, and uh, I would recommend to to listeners that they look out for, you know, those things that are sneaked under the radar um, amidst the uh, controversy in the media circus. That's uh, the real dynamics at play often. That's that's the that's actually correct. I've talked about that on this program before too, and why I didn't really trust Trump, where the Trump was really in there with a secret plan. It's because then he signed uh, FSB fifty two, which what it did is it basically allowed the, all every government agency, not just uh, the CIA, whom you'd expect already has their their accounting off book, but uh, you know housing and urban development which handles massive loans that support the financial infrastructure via Fetty and Franny Mac. All right. And so now they do not have to show any accountability for any of their books, any, anything they're doing whatsoever. No one can audit you know, them. They can, they don't have to show that they're using that money for what they say it is. And yet yeah. they control, you know, a huge percentage of the mortgages in the American mortgage market. Um, what that basically means is you no longer have any accountability in your government. And, you know, so it's like, Everyone, it, it, like a magician, a good magician in a magic show, has you looking here so you don't see what he's doing back here. Mm. Or you're looking at this side of the stage so you're not seeing the people with the reels and the ropes on the other side of the stage, and so on and so forth. So it, the uh, politics is very much a magic show in that regard. It's like, look well, over yeah, here. Yeah. We'll drop big news on Friday when people stop paying attention so they can go yeah. to the bars yeah. and uh, act like it never happened on Monday. What I find most remarkable about this whole situation, though, is as unpopular as Joe Biden is, sleepy Catholic, uh, sleepy fake Catholic, uh, usurper in chief Joe Biden, Go is, Brandon. is that <laughs> Kamala Harris is substantially less popular than he. And, you know, I find this as a perfect opportunity for him to get rid of her, to shed her if he indeed does have plans for the next run. I mean, look at this man. He can't even keep a sentence together. Cool reopenings or closures become a potent midterm issue for Republicans to win back the suburbs? Oh, I think it could be, but I hope in God that they're, uh, that, look, maybe I'm kidding myself, but as time goes on, the voter who is just trying to figure out, as I said, how to take care of their family, put three squares on the table, stay safe, be able to pay their mortgage or their rent, et cetera. Uh, 
has is becoming much more informed on the um, the motives of um, some of the political players and some of the. I mean, just let the man retire already. But uh, um, I might point out, you're, uh, when I went to Dearborn, driving that, uh, you know, uh, was up there. I don't know, man. It, it, uh, I think the press thought I was crazy. I enjoyed it so much going up. and. Uh, <laughs> First of all, this is the guy that makes the nomination. <laughs> this guy is more, this more popular than Kabbalah Harris. And so but I th- this is such a perfect opportunity to get rid. Look, she slept her way all the way to the top to the White House. Get rid of her. Put her on the court. And and as, as all the three of you have said, she's replacing Stephen Breyer. She can be as liberal as she wants. He's reliably yeah. liberal. It doesn't change the balance of power. Dump her and clear a path <laughs> for Hillary Rodham Clinton. That's there right. You go. <laughs> Clinton versus I just Trump. fear for the institution of law itself. But, oh, yeah. Let's bring up the point, though. The you know, if, if Steve were here, he would say, well, you got a divorce from D.C. and you need to, you know, don't worry about the Supreme Court. How do you divorce from nine robed jurists who have absolute power over your lives, though? You know what I mean? So, like, here's the yep. distinction. I, do I care about who gets put on the court? Yeah, I sort of have to care. Do I want to care? No, of course not. I, I wish that the Supreme Court didn't have the power that it did, Ryan. But it does. It practically does. So I don't know. I don't know how I not care about it. Yeah, that's the thing is that there is this problem. It's called the United States Constitution with the Federal Supremacy Clause and how that the the battles over how much it does or doesn't apply to the states over the course of this nation's history through the Civil War through Lincoln, where following in the in the 19th century that now establishes that yes the court can control all the other states the court can overrule the laws in various states if it deems they're unconstitutional and since the at least the mid 20th century if not even earlier the court has seen it is its role in all courts too all federal courts have seen it as their jobs to make new law now in the liberals the left on this and the legal side of these issues they celebrate that and they call it, it's, it's because the Constitution is a le- living, breathing document. You can't read it like Protestant fundamentalists read the Bible, right? We've all heard that kind of rhetoric before. And we, Peter here, can affirm this. The American founders were looking for a static and fixed Constitution that really was just that's it. And if you want to fix it, you need two-thirds of the states to amend it. Whereas in England, you have a living Constitution because the Constitution is essentially parliamentary law. And it's evolving establishment of rights and charters or the revision of that constitutes the, the English Constitution, unless I'm mistaken. No, that's absolutely so. So our constitutionalism is rooted in older medieval political theory, which correctly sees political communities as a body, uh, as an organic entity which grows develops matures as opposed to the american um worldview the the enlightenment worldview which sees political communities as a machine so there's a universalist understanding which which sees society as kind of frozen aspic and you can just if you just engineer it correctly and and instantiate the right principles for all time 
then that's that's applicable, um, you know, forevermore. Uh, that was the stage of the revolutionary thought, which is obviously, um, you know, has they, the the progressive the revolution has moved on from now. And it, it, it appears as though uh, as we as we sort of survey the landscape, um, even folks like Tucker Carlson are waking up to the fact that we are less so-called democratic uh, than nations in Eastern Europe. Here's his exchange with Geraldo Rivera, in which he argues that Hungary is more democratic than the United States. Hi, Tucker. Erica and I visited uh, Budapest uh, the summer of uh, 2020. They were looking forward to the elections coming up in April. Uh, yeah. Viktor Orban, the president, uh, very controversial there. They, he's thought of as authoritarian. Uh, you know, also on the ballot is the fact that in Hungary, they're not allowed to teach LGBTQ, uh, you know, facts of life until a kid is 18 or over. Uh, do you want America to be more like Hungary? Is that why you did this? Well, I don't know if they'd say it, if I'd say it's authoritarian. I mean, they didn't lock up hundreds of people without trial and solitary confinement for staging a political protest or trespassing. We did do that and are still doing it. Nothing like that, as far as I know, is happening in Hungary. There are no political prisoners. Orban could lose, by the way, in the elections in April. So it's, it's hardly this monolithic one-party state. It's not like one party controls all the levers of government, like is the case in this country. I mean, look, I'm an American. I love America. I will always defend America. But the idea that Hungary is less a democracy than the U.S. or than Ukraine, I mean, it's just a lie. Anyone who says that is either lying or doesn't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) Really, this nation's an oligarchy. In fact, there was a Harvard study that examined... uh, how you know how free Americans actually are? How much do the decisions Americans take at the polls, through writing their congressmen, through any of the vehicles that we typically use uh, in this country to express our will? Mm. And they they took these and they they uh, stacked them against a free society versus a not free society. What the ideal of a democratic society is, and they realized that well the way it actually works. It lines up more with a uh, an oligarchy, not with a democracy. Yeah, I, I I would I would argue the same. I would I would say that we uh, we wear the thin veneer of democracy in these United States. We pretend that we're a democracy. We ostensibly revere the institution, so called, of democracy. Uh, we participate in some of the sacraments of democracy insofar as we vote, although I wouldn't uh, say that our votes are necessarily reliable, nor do they matter. Um, but, at, but, but while we worship at the altar of democracy and while we, uh, we pretend that we are one, I think you're absolutely right. We have always been really an oligarchy, perhaps an aristocracy, except our aristocrats aren't landed and hereditary. They're just titans of business or entertainment. Um, and therefore, you know, so and, and today the court's gestures, the social media influencers, the Kim Kardashians have access to the White House, whereas you and I don't. Um, I, there's nothing really democratic about that process, nor is there anything democratic about the fiat of various, you know, bureaucratic uh, institutions and in government. Um, the bureaucracy has more power today than, you know, than than. George III ever dreamed of having over these United States, over these colonies. Um, and we threw him off for much less than what we suffer today, especially under the COVID regime. So I think anybody who says that democracy is sacrosanct um, is 
is still waking up to, you know, hasn't taken their red pill, uh, Peter, in terms of, you know, the, the, the true fact on the ground of, of, uh, you know, of the real society that we live in. It's, we, we have very little say in what the technocrats and the oligarchs uh, demand of us. Yes, it's not just that democracy is, uh, that whether it's sacrosanct, it's, it just doesn't exist. Um, I mean, to to suffer the delusion that you're you have as much political influence as Bill Gates, as George Soros, as you know uh, a Rothschild banker. I mean, it's it's just you know demonstrably not true. Um, so it's an illusion uh, which is starting to crumble, um, and and hopefully people realise that uh, society will always be moved by an elite. It's just about who those elite are, whether they are um whether, whether whether they participate in the life of grace or not mm-hmm. um but ultimately otherwise they'll just be predatory i want to just come in on the hungarian point though because i know a lot of let's say social conservatives get very enthusiastic about um orban's government and i can understand why to some extent um the hungarian family policy um is uh, often credited with the um the marriage rates in Hungary increasing by 43% from 2010 to 2018, divorce rates decreasing by 22.5%, fertility increasing by 21%, and abortion decreasing by 33.5%. That's all commendable. Obviously, the uh, the the crime of abortion, the fact that it's even legal there is, uh, is, is uh, horrendous. Um, but there, there is uh, some bravery to Orbán's policies there, um, and uh, we, you know, commend perhaps the sentiment behind it. Um, but I would, it is important for people to know that the, 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 the objective behind this, which is to uh, recover Hungary's uh, catastrophic fertility rates, uh, which are um, replicated across the West as we enter this demographic death spiral. The, the suicide of liberalism, um, they have not recovered, uh, despite what I said. I mean, Hungary's uh, fertility rate uh, briefly reached 1.5 before slipping back to 1.48 in 2019. Um, OK, why is this? It's because perhaps as well-meaning as these family policies are, they're not much more radical measures are needed. Um, and and uh, they're deeper than this is the fact that the majority of the Hungarian incentives, so the um, uh, the uh, the fact that Hungarian families that have, I think it's four, three or four children are um, are removed from income tax completely. Um, but these benefits are often only available to parents in full-time work. And this perhaps is because uh, of the, the, the problems with the gypsy population who are notoriously work-averse and, uh, and fast breeding. But the overall impact is to keep women in the workplace, um, despite the fact that we all know that the that young women in the workplace is key factor driving down the wages of men and their ability thus to be breadwinners, heads of families. Um, so the Orban headline incentive of no income tax for mothers of four is a prime example of, of the muddle-headed thinking here. How can anyone expect a mother with four or more children to look after those children and also hold down a full-time job? Um, between 48 and 8, 1980, more than 1 million Hungarian women were pulled out of their families in order to use them on the lab- uh, in order to, to join the labour market. 
82% of the women whose unborn children are the only thing that could save Hungary are in work. So I want to make a bigger point here, which is that if you just try and conserve a pastiche yeah. Christendom, if you lose yeah. your grip on the essential truth that women belong in the domestic sphere, for example, and you just mm -hmm. try and hold on to the fruits of Christendom, but you lo you've lost your grip on some of those important principles, you will not be able to recover your civilization. It, it might be uh, a deceleration. It might be a pause, um, but it will not be a recovery. It's Christ or nothing. Um, so this is, a, I think, a good example of where um, some recognition of the natural law, shall we say, uh, is, is insufficient um, since it is not a turning of men's hearts back to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it seems like it's such a low bar, though, brother. You know, it's like hey, we get excited, especially in the United States. We look at Romania or Hungary or Poland and we say, oh, you know, they have pro-family policies. They must be, you know, because because we are so far gone here in the new world uh, and in the old West. Um, you know, but I think that this I think Peter's point is is correct. You know, we can't we're, if this we can't make relativist arguments. We can't say, oh, relative to us, they are better. We have to make objective arguments objectively, uh, as he said, you know, it's not so good. Absolutely true. And I, I say this also to those who are proposing even something, a concept like libertarianism as a, as a compromise to help us get closer to where we should be or whatever is it's simply it's all or nothing. Uh, it's, uh, you know, go big or go home. It's, it's either we, we acknowledge the, uh, the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ or uh, we we compromise precisely that, um, even if we trying to justify it within ourselves, saying, "Oh, we're working towards that." But really, I mean, the people that we're fighting against, all all they want is power, and so there's really no compromise. Let's let's work together so that we can establish the, the reign of Christ the King. And ultimately, that's not that's ultimately that's what what they hate. That's what they don't want. That's what the, they're trying to avoid at all costs. Um, what we want at all costs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, re relatively speaking, sure, we could look at these countries and say, yeah, they're doing better than us. But at the same time, um, now, all, right now, we really we, we need to focus on, on, on restoring the church and keep the traditional uh, traditional faith um, because we're getting uh, bombarded on all sides. And so um, we can focus on that and, and keeping our faith and, and, and raising your children uh, to keep the faith, et cetera, et cetera. I'd say we're, we're doing pretty good in that. There's another topic we have to get to. I'll go to, straight to Ryan. Um, it's it's just a mask. It's just a mask. It's no big deal. You punch in the face in Belgium, it get worse otherwise. Hey, be gentle. All right. She's not resisting. Come on. Look at this congressional testimony, especially about the DOD, the Department of Defense in the United States. Seventy-one percent of the vaccine of the of the new COVID cases are vaccinated people. Sixty percent of the people in hospital are vaccinated people. Rise in miscarriages, rise in cancers. All three have, have given me this data. I have declarations from all three. This data is under penalty. Uh, this is under penalty of perjury. We intend to submit this to the courts. Uh, we have substantial data showing that uh, we saw, for example, uh, miscarriages increased by 300% over the five-year average, almost, 
Uh, we saw almost 300% increase in cancer over the five-year average. Cancer is not being talked about except for by Dr. Ryan Cole. Thank you, doctor. Uh, we saw, this one's amazing, neurological. So f neurological issues which would affect our pilots. Over a thousand percent increase. A uh, thousand. Ten, ten times. That's ten times rate, and obviously that resonates. 83,000 per year, to, I'm sorry, 82,000 per year to 863,000 in one year. Our soldiers are being experimented on, injured, and sometimes possibly killed. Dr. Corey, thank you so much for your stance on the corruption. That's precisely what it is. They know this, and Senator, uh, when these doctors are attacked, not necessarily the people in this room, I'm give, not giving names, they call me. I'm the one dealing with the medical boards. I'm the one watching the witch hunts. I'm the one fighting them off, and I'm the one telling them where to go. I'm going to keep doing that. Senator, we also have, uh, let me give you this last thing, and then I'll shut up and uh, get out of your way. 928, 2021. Project SALUS weekly report. Project SALUS is a defense, a defense department initiative where they report and contract, uh, they take all this data that doesn't exist, supposedly, and they give it to the CDC. They're watching these vaccines. On that date, and around that date, I have numerous instances where Fauci and that entire crew were saying, it's a crisis of unvaxed. It's 99% unvaxed in the hospital. In Project SALUS, in the weekly report, the DOD document, says specifically 71% of new cases are in the fully vaxxed and 60% of hospitalizations are in the fully vaxxed. This is corruption at the highest level. We need investigations. The Secretary of Defense needs investigated. The CDC needs to be investigated. And Ryan, uh, I think this will turn out to be a who knew what and when situation, but when uh, sleepy Joe Biden, fake Catholic usurper in chief, says this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated we know that the dod we know that the cdc has been collecting these stats we know that that has been a lie absolutely it's been a lie we know that and anybody who's really been paying attention scrutinizing the numbers knows that but you're not allowed to say that of course uh, even uh, alberta the province of alberta in canada they published their 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 equivalent of the cdc for that province they published a report their government office on health, showing that um, about 70% of the jab uh, were making up the, the those who were admitted to hospital with, with uh, serious uh, reactions and serious heart problems or whatever else. And yet they were identified as being unjabbed for the official data that went out to the press to, to fuel the, the scandemic of the unvaccinated, of unjabbed, right? So uh, see if we can avoid getting us booted off YouTube. Here we are again, you know, with Fauci diapers, with everything else. Uh, you know, again, we, we've talked about this for over a year. We know it's, it's garbage, but it's, it's a compliance tool. That's all of these things are mere compliance tools. They don't exist because they're concerned about our health. If they're concerned about our health, we're on the cusp of the biggest famine since ancient times. They would be getting every single person to be growing wheat, growing vegetables, growing, uh, you know, getting areas, setting up community gardens, whatever. They would be doing this everywhere as an emergency effort to have something there when it all goes away. They're not, they're not going to do that. They want people to have no access to food so that you have to eat the new soylent that they're going to roll out starting, you know, the next couple of years. 
And, you know, so that, and that's the, the, the jab and the mask, these are all part of that compliance thing. But I, I actually wanted to bounce a question over to Peter in terms of, uh, so we saw this for one of those videos from uh, um, Australia. And we have a lot of Australian uh, viewers that watch the show. And I've noticed that some of the more brutal repressions of people for trying to uh, just, just breathe the free air have been in Canada or in Australia. Or again, in New Zealand, one person gets sick, they shut down the entire country. Why is it that, because you, you spoke earlier about, quite rightly, in my opinion, about the Anglo-Saxon uh, liberties, Anglo-Saxon constitutional notions that we cling to, that we have still the, the remnant of in this country, uh, maybe the skeleton of, um, if not the spirit. And But in these crown countries, they seem to have gone you know, from trying to be as nice as possible to be as Gestapo as possible. Uh, what happened there? How did that happen? Well, I am similarly perplexed because the, the distinction that I've at least been able to draw in regard to the response to the COVID hysteria has been largely between common law jurisdictions and civil law jurisdictions. So in common law jurisdictions uh, where law is, is by discovery, it's case law, uh, as opposed to civil law, which kind of presupposes a divinity of uh, of law of statute law of, of law by edict, uh, you would expect to see uh, the kind of um, mass psychosis uh, that you've seen in a lot of uh, continental countries, uh, where even, for example, in um, anti-fashionable injection uh, protests in Germany, many people still wear muzzles. Um, and it's it's them saying that, yes, I dis I disagree with this, but I'm going to democratically fight against the law. I'm not going to actually uh, contravene the law itself. I'm not going to transgress it. Whereas in common law jurisdictions, we would say, no, uh, I'm going to not comply. And I'm, I want to participate in in making that unjust law crumble. Um, now, as for the the crown, uh, you know, Commonwealth realms of Canada and Australia, um, I've heard it said that, you know, Australians are descended from not from the convicts, but from the guards uh, or at least from the convicts. And they actually have a, a perverse joy in being uh, uh, having a highly uh, regimented and, and tyrannized existence. Um, it's it's very strange. It's very mysterious. I don't think those nations, let's say, in salvation history have like acquitted themselves particularly well. I'm not saying that Great Britain has either or England has, um, but. But but somewhere like Australia was a third Catholic as a result of its Irish inheritance. And, you know, look where it is now. So I I, I very much see things in supernatural terms and see these nations as being punished uh, for their apostasy. Um, so, uh, yes, quite how they've ended up in that situ situation, I, I don't know. But it, it it's it's shocking how they'll be able to maintain it as they retreat from the narrative in so many countries now. I don't know. That's that's going to be increasingly bizarre. How is it in New Zealand? They'll be able to they'll try and maintain the tyranny when in Britain they've just declared an end to the whole uh, scamdemic. Yeah, it'll be interesting distinctions. And, and, and it looks like we're witnessing something like that in these United States. I mean, the, the vast majority of geographic United States have thrown off the shackles of the covid religion. But in elite places like California, one of the largest economies in the world, and in New York, they're going back to the mandates. Here's a doctor in California saying that he'll lose his license if he takes the mask off. Went out to all physicians from the medical board saying, 
any physician in California who writes an inappropriate exemption for masks or other COVID-related measures will have his medical license subjected to investigation and disciplinary action. So for a physician, just to help you to understand, this kind of uh, threat hanging over your head is worse than the threat of getting fired. If I get fired from a particular healthcare organization, I can go to another healthcare organization or go start a private practice. If I lose my medical license, I cannot practice medicine. Okay, That's how serious this is. The letter never defined what might constitute an appropriate or inappropriate mask mandate. So I have no idea if I write a mandate for a kid with a severe anxiety disorder that's worsened by the wearing of a mask. Is that is that going to subject my medical license to disciplinary action? Uh, physicians in California interpreted the phrase and other COVID-related re- measures to include vaccines, which had already been uh, rolled out at that point. It has become de facto impossible to get a medical exemption for a COVID vaccine in the state of California. No. And it's not just California, it's New York, it's Boston, it's Chicago. I mean, we, we see this this, uh, this incon- incongruity uh, across the land on our continent as well. I mean, most people uh, in free America have, have woken up and, and, and see what's going on. But most people, for example, in New York City, New York City, uh, they believe that there is a pandemic. And so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not just, you know, the, the crown countries versus the UK proper or now Ireland is now dropping. Uh, but but it's 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 um, it's weird. It's happening disproportionately all around the world. And we and we haven't really even done a deep dive on this show into Latin America or to Asia, where some Latin American and Asian countries really are clinging to the covid religion and other Latin American and Asian countries are not. And there doesn't seem to be a discernible reason. Uh, so that's that's it's going to be most interesting to watch it unfold. I think, Ryan. I think so too. It's <clears throat> I don't want to delve too deep into Latin America. As I'm just not familiar enough. I can read Spanish okay, but I'm not fluent in it. I'm not too versed in the culture. Asia. Um, I'm trying to find a way to say this that's not going to be patronizing or offensive, but in Asia, there is a tradition of accepting authoritarianism as the natural way of things. And so the notion of, um, you know, we want a certain amount of rights in this or that country in Asia, that's a relatively 20th century thing. And it's largely imported from the West or it's a result of the British Empire or it's a result of, I mean, you view the way Hong Kong views things versus the rest of China, for instance. But um, and, and so I think that authoritarianism plays in very strongly in the number of people you see in those countries that have embraced it and continue to accept it. And that doesn't mean they uh, uh, they all have. That doesn't mean that every single person there is completely a slave. There are people there who are awake to it as well. But just as a cultural phenomenon, there's a lot more obsequience to any government yeah, yeah. Taught, no matter who the government uh, happens to be. Yeah, no, uh, I, having, having lived in Japan, having traveled the Far East, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's a cultural norm there to just wait in line. It's a cultural Although, norm there. Although, I will say something about Japan. Maybe it's American influence, I don't know. But in spite of Code of Bushido, all these things people like to attribute, uh, a number of people that I know who are living in Japan right now 
say that even though mask wearing has kind of been a normative thing since the 90s, since I think uh, one of the SARS outbreaks, at the same time, there are a lot of people who are not wearing them. And a lot of people who might comply to a certain extent, but they'll mock things. And the government's been very cautious. They'll say, yeah, bars and restaurants don't be open after eight. Uh, please don't be open after eight. It'll be put in the in the method of just to kind of, this is what we're saying is historically, the expectation mm-hmm. is you'll obey. And a lot of people are not. From what I'm hearing in certain areas, oh, this is this is awfully convenient for the Chinese. Here's a lockdown drone in China. Make it stop! I can't make it stop. Obey supreme leader. It's, it's well, funny. Supposedly what the drone is saying is your district is now in lockdown. Stay home. And they literally just sent a drone. And the drone announces via loudspeaker that you cannot leave your home anymore. And that's that. That's law. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, very, very fascinating. Okay, final topic before we get to the unpopular opinion segment and then the grifter segment. Um, in our, this is, this is fa- quickly becoming a weekly rundown segment. Public schools of mortal sin. Oh, it's not playing. Public schools of mortal sin. Let's try again. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Barbara King wants to arm this eighth grade class. All right. So today's topic is misinformation. With the tools they will need in a world of information saturation. We're going to learn to identify the various types of misinformation. And there is a lot to learn. They're called satire, false context, imposter content, manipulated content, and fabricated content. Just imagine trying to make sense of all of this as a teenager. Now we go to imposter content. What does imposter mean? Try someone trying to be someone else, right? You get that word, what's an imposter? So an imposter uh pope francis would be so pleased with uh what he sees in that new york classroom um man i hate saying it every week but public sin public public schools are more sin. <laughs> notice one of the things they did in there is that they included satire with the misinformation and you see yeah, things right. here, such right. as like the babylon b the onion whatever and mostly the babylon b because they, they don't swing left like the onion does However, they would be included in these fact checks. So they would actually take the time, but at first it was CNN, now it's the fact checkers, to fact check a Babylon B article, not a not the B article, but a Babylon B, which is obviously mm-hmm. ridiculous. And it's always one that doesn't even have the uh, this verisimilitude. It's always so absurd. Like CNN uh, takes the news, puts it in a spin cycle before reading it on air, right? Um, and, and they fact check that took the time to say to even contact CNN staff and say, no, we've never put the news reader sheets in the spin cycle before going air. It's like, how stupid are you? And no, there's a reason for it. They're not that stupid. They are trying to, because the one thing tyrants hate when a tyrant is in power, 
we are without any kind of resistance to him or any effective resistance, the last thing you have left is to laugh at them, to mock them. They do not want us to mock them. That's that the, the thing, it, just like George IV, uh, you know, he had a lot of detractors for very good reasons in some cases in terms of his lifestyle, but there was nothing he hated more than punch. That was the thing that uh, that is the, the uh, satirical paper punch because they would run these ridiculous cartoons and satires against them. That was far more effective criticism than anything that was said in Parliament. I well, I think part of that is was just because liberals take themselves so seriously and they have they have zero senses of humor, Peter. But uh, I mean, it is interesting though that in American classrooms and and perhaps around the world, they are, the, the students are now being armed against misinformation like satire. Yeah, well, to Ryan's point, ridicule is a great and effective weapon, one we must make recourse to more. We shouldn't tiptoe around the the revolutionary uh, solemnity. They they are like that because they adhere to a false religion. Um, and so anything that attacks their idol uh, will be, uh, they will oppose vociferously. Simply put, having success within the regime is not a moral prospect. A lot of people on the so-called right today, you know, moan about losing their job in, uh, you know, media or in globo homo corporations or in government civil service, uh, what have you. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, I, I want to sympathize with people who go through that, uh, you know, severe disruption in their uh, in their life. Um, but actually, overall, it's a good thing. That's less people contributing to the whole rotten system. Um, so we need to uh, lose the the world, the ambition where we want our children to go through the public school system to get a, you know, a meaningless uh, corporate job making widgets for George Soros or whatever, uh, or, or, or being some kind of uh, HR Harridan or whatever, you know, they, just forget it. It's it's got no life in it. Um, yeah. That it's time for, to return to domestic economies and to cultivate a local Christendom. Think local, act local. Uh, it's time for our unpopular opinions, and since there are four of us, we will have four unpopular opinions. We'll start with Ryan, uh, then we'll go to brother, then we'll go to Peter, then. Uh, I'll, I'll provide my unpopular for, opinion for the week. <laughs> rules of the road. Since we haven't talked about the rules for this in a while, Ryan, uh, is you vote for the opinion which is objectively most unpopular. The thing that you say, wow, a lot of people would disagree with that. You don't say, oh, I really like that one or I agree with it or I'm voting for it because I want it to be my next senator. You're, vote, you're trying to incentivize us to say the objectively most unpopular things on YouTube that we can get away with so that we are incentivized to continue to bring you most unpopular opinions on planet earth in traddom start with you ryan so most people say we were talking about the let them eat cake thing at the beginning of this a lot of people say that the french revolution is the beginning of modernity that's the beginning of um all of the problems that come down to the present i'm going to argue that a different date is actually the source the the object or the, the objective point where modernity and the revolutions against uh, against the church really begin. And in, in the anniversary of that's coming up in a couple of days, 29th January, 1649, um, 140 years before the guillotines of the French Revolution, 
the English killed their own king. That it, it's merely a, this was why I picked this early in the week before I knew Peter was coming on. By the way, I'm not saying this because we have an Englishman. Mm -hmm. um, but because the 29th of January is the anniversary, it's also my birthday. But um, that's when Charles the first had his head chopped off, and the conflict that that took place in was the English Civil War which almost nobody knows about. You say Civil War and most Americans think, oh yeah, you know, Confederacy versus the Union, et cetera. So, and I'm not gonna go through the entirety of the English Civil War, but the consequences of that, you know, it, it brought about a, a new thing. Average commoners now into the army because the parliamentary side needed as many people as they could to fight against the king. And what they brought into being was this, uh, basically people espousing what today we would recognize as being kind of Republican Democratic uh, opinions on a lot of matters. And this is the faction of the army that backs Cromwell in calling for the king's death. You can see uh, the Putney debates between Henry Ireton and uh, Richard Lilburn, where the, you know, the various sol the soldiers and the levelers and various groups are debating. They want to, you know, cancel aristocracy. And Henry Ireton, who's uh, Oliver Cromwell's son-in-law, is to kind of Put the brakes on this. No, no, we're not going that far. We're, we're, we're trying to restore your liberty, not go full out revolution, but it was a revolution. And the execution of King Charles I really is the beginning of and the archetype of the French Revolution. If anything, the more can, in good English fashion compared to the French, the more conservative side of the French Revolution, which is the more liberal, communist side. You're muted, Mike. I'm covering people's faces, but we need to go to brother. All right, my unpopular <laughs> opinion this week. <laughs> um, it'll definitely have to do with um, what we spoke about earlier in the show, about the chasm being greater divided between Catholics and uh, new Catholics. Um, the Catholics that hold on to the traditional faith who read the Church Fathers, who read the Scholastics, who read Vatican I um, and Vatican II in light of everything that preceded before it, who find some issues, who find some problems, who find some need for a solid uh, definition of what Vatican II actually means. Because every time somebody asks you, do you believe in Vatican II, everyone wonders, well, whose interpretation of Vatican II, Ratzinger's interpretation of Vatican II that believes in hermeneutic continuity, uh, Pope Bergoglio's interpretation of Vatican II, this is, it's a rupture from the hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutic of, of hermen it's a rupture from everything f before. And so whose definition? Uh, and more and more we're seeing this play out in, in, in the priests, in, in, in diocese, in the diocese that you live in, that um, who wear lace, who wear nice vestments, who, who wear cassocks, who wear saturnos, but then show up to weddings and ride around and, and on a skateboard. Uh, around the dinner table, et cetera, et cetera, or who wear a cassock but do dances um, that are very demeaning to the priestly character, um, who, who just comport themselves publicly um, as, as college students as opposed to alter Christus. Um, so my unpopular opinion is that uh, the chasm is broken, the Red Sea has parted. Um, there is a stark difference between those who adhere to the traditional Catholic faith um, and then those who are trying to create their own new faith with their own new priesthood, with their own new rituals, et cetera. Um, there are two religions. There are two. There, there's not one with two different uh, dialects. There's not one language, two different dialects. There's two different languages. There's two. There's two now. There's two. 
there's two. Um, visibly under one head. Um, however, that's not going to exist much longer. I really do think if, if our Holy Father uh, survives much longer, that he's going to uh, drop down the guillotine on the Inquisitive communities, on all the traditionalists. And the traditionalists are going to have to choose between their faith or, or canon law. And of course, canon law has legitimacy because of our faith. If our faith wasn't true, then canon law wouldn't exist. And so I really do hope that those who actually are, are Catholic believe that without their faith, there's nothing. Um, I feel sorry for those who believe that, uh, believe that if their canon, if, if canon law didn't exist then the faith didn't exist because that's not true. If the faith didn't exist, the canon law wouldn't exist. It would mean nothing. Canon law would mean nothing if the faith didn't exist. The faith is what gives us the canon law. Um, and so if you choose canon law over the faith then you're nothing, you're zero, you're a zero, you're a square, nothing. Um, so that's my unpopular opinion is that there are two religions. All right, uh, Mr. Peter with Fun Day Radio, joining us for the first time. And it's been a great pleasure. I, uh, I appreciate your combination of, uh, of both informative content, content and geniality. In response to Ryan's point, uh, on there, de Balzac famously said that when they cut off the head of the king of France, they cut off the head of all the fathers in France. You could say the wow. same of the regicide of king charles the first the king was the father of the fathers of the realm and there is a mysterious platonic participation the king is like an image a participation in god's majesty in 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 god's glory in that sense in, in his fatherhood uh as saint paul says uh the you know the father the the uh the father from whom all paternity is is derived and so when that father is attacked, when he's slain, that is a tremendous fragilization of the, the social architecture of the Christian social order. Um, but as for my unpopular opinion, um, I've had, uh, you know, quite a number of disagreements with the commentator Timothy Gordon. One area that mm -hmm. we have had a meeting of minds is with regards to the importance of patriarchy, the point I was just making. Um, but... Um, I think that it's important that we don't represent our um, presentation and our advocacy of patriarchy as a kind of 1950s pastiche. The 1950s was deeply, uh, you know, immersed in the revolutionary process. Um, I shared an article on Twitter about from Mary Harrington, which made several good points about the uh, the need to return not to the uh, the 1950s, but to the 1250s. Um, but the, the point here is that that model of domesticity where the husband leaves the home uh, all day and returns at, at you know, six, six o'clock and the, and the wife runs the, the home um, is not the ideal. Husband means housebound. And uh, the, 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 uh, a woman wants to be the helpmate. She wants she, her desires for her husband to cling to her husband. And so uh, we need to look for a return to domestic economies where the uh, the war of the sexes that the revolutionaries try to stoke in uh, have stoked in our in the last few centuries is is not not the case. The the relationships are between the sexes complementary. It's harmonic. Uh, so there's no argument about for the barrel maker, you know, about who, uh, you know, does the jobs or whatever. I mean, obviously, he's going to do the heavy lifting and obviously she's going to do the churning of the butter and the 
the clothing, you know, the the uh, cleaning the clothes and so on. Um, so you have uh, domestic economies, um, and that I think uh, puts an end to uh, this kind of interminable uh, conflagration uh, as regard to the position of man and uh, man and wife and uh, work. I think that's an interesting point. Um, the uh, The disappearance of men from the imagery of their children uh, has been disastrous for society. Children used to see their they used to see their father's work. They used to see them sort out problems and face obstacles and reason around them and work through them. That's how young men became men is they they emulated their father when dad goes to the office building or to the law firm or to wherever you know for as you said 10 hours a day and he disappears then when he returns home all that the children see of the father is him uh, uh recreating and so they then they they create this view of manhood that when I'm a man, I can lounge. When I'm a man, I can come home and have my wife serve me. Um, that is sort of the Tim Gordon view of masculinity, too, is just lounging around in your skateboard uh, attire and having your wife uh, obey you. Uh, so, yeah, it's a huge problem. And I, and I, I commend you on that unpopular opinion. Um, as for me, my unpopular opinion this week is going to be a continuation of last week. I told you last week that primogeniture needs to return. Uh, that it's a French revolutionary idea that you divide the assets of the family equally among the siblings, which creates sibling ri uh, rivalry and reinvents families and destroys them every generation. It prevents the patrimony of the family from being passed down and preserved. Um, the corollary to that, which is this week's unpopular opinion, is that whenever you see single people or people without husbands and wives, people without families, people in disordered lives attacking family men, you are, you are witnessing people who are French revolutionaries. And it doesn't matter if they claim to be Catholic or if they run large apostolates or if they have huge donors or if they have multi-million dollar media enterprises. If they are attacking family people and they are disordered non-family people, uh, they hate family people. And specifically, when they go after your property, an attack on your property, an attack on the property and the patrimony of a family is an attack on the family in general. I don't think I told you this detail last week, but when a family dies out, when, he, when the family name is extinguished, when there are no heirs to the family, in Christendom, there would ring out the solemn bells of the church. The church would ring the bells signifying the death of the family. It was the death of an entire family within a village, within a people, within a community. And it was, it was something to be mourned. Part of what sustains the family is the property of the family. So when you see big Catholic organizations that attack people's property, that obsess over other people's property and make, uh, and make Marxist arguments about other people's holdings, you can be sure that these are revolutionaries, that they are part of the revolutionary process. They're not traditionalists. They're not friends to tradition. They're not Catholics. And so what I think we need to return to is an absolute respect for not only the, the, the head of the household and the order of the family, um, but a reverence for the order within the family and particularly 
for the ability of a family to maintain itself through its patrimony, through its property. Um, and, um, and, and this is something that is absolutely lost today. We have, uh, a, we have class envy even within traditionalism. We have class envy within Catholicism. We have people who say, oh, you know, I don't like this person because, you know, he, you know, I don't like, you know, that they wear really nice clothes to mass, whatever it is. And we, we need to get past all of that because the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the, the patrimony of a family is something that is solemnly handed down, ought to be solemnly handed down from generation to generation. And again, when you see people attacking family men, uh, who go out of their way, it seems, to go after married men with children and to try to deprive them of their property, either through um, litigation or through defamation or through any other um, revolutionary means. You can be sure that that person has class envy and is not Catholic. Uh, that's my unpopular opinion. Okay, we have to grift, guys. We have like five minutes left to grift. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my many thanks to Church Militant for making that meme for us. I think it's uh, or that gif. Uh, Ryan, you always go first with the grifting. Are you ready to grift? Can't hear you, Ryan. You're muted. Ryan's muted. I am not. I, I don't have anything particular or special to grift this week. Um, I would just say visit uh, mediatrixpress.com, pick up uh, books you haven't picked up yet. And I have a lot more coming this year. And I have people that are adding to uh, the various things that we're going to be producing. And I'm you know, moving steadily along. Uh, so do check out mediatrixpress.com. And if you're a book club member, look for an email soon about this month's book. I have to change one or two things up. I love it. I love it. All right, uh, Brother Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that slapping bass is pretty good <laughs> and we still have our calendars for sale uh augustinian pre-55 uh calendars with it's a pre-55 calendar with the august augustinian saints put in um, as you can see in february 2022 we have quite a few augustinian saints coming up but then again underneath uh, has all the saints that you would experience uh going to your to your latin mass closest to you um so it's pretty practical yet you could also learn um what the calendar looked like pre-55 if you use the father lassance missiles the same classifications um as you can see the the double majors and the uh, duplex of the second class uh doubles of the second class etc cetera, etc cetera. so it, it goes along with your uh father lassance missile so uh oblacesinaugustin.com slash shop you can find our calendars um they're, they're very practical um and we'll get those out to you pretty soon Excellent. I have one. Our family uh, follows the pre-55 calendar as put out by the Augustinians. Um, tell us about Vonday Radio, Peter, and, and Grift for anything else you want. To- I think grifting and marketing are particularly American talents. Um, <laughs> I don't mean any offense by that. Uh, but I would ask uh, listeners to subscribe to Vonday Radio. Um, I, Despite it being uh, the channel uh, being reasonably quiet recently, I do have uh, several broadcasts planned uh, in the near future on the current situation, examining this, this pivot 
away from the COVID narrative and examining the story of the failure of conservatism um, and also an assessment of the pro-life movement uh, and, and, and what we can learn from that as well. Um, so, yes, uh, please, please subscribe. I want to tell you about this book. It's called Consecration to St. Michael. And it's put out by Angelus Press. It just came out. Consecration of St. Michael, nine-day preparation for spiritual warfare. Uh, I cannot pronounce the name of the gentleman who put it out. It's very Irish, very Celtic. Uh, but I think his first name is Cahal. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. Uh, but I, you know, this is something. Look, we are, we are always behind in our spiritual lives. I know I speak from experience, and um, so September 29th is going to be upon us sooner than later. I mean, look, we're already headed into Lent. Might as well pick up this book from Angelus Press, Consecration of St. Michael. Get ready. You could, I'm planning to do the nine-day novena and consecration before September 29th, but if you want to wait for the Feast of St. Michael, if you want to wait till Michaelmas, um, now would be the time to pick up the book, put it on your shelf, and uh, and that way you're not, you know, kind of like last minute like we always tend to be. Uh, the other thing that we're doing right now is the nine-day novena, and I, I apologize I didn't tell you about this last week to Our Lady of Good Success. Uh, I believe today is day four. Um, it culminates on Candlemas, uh, Our Lady of Good Success down in Quito, Ecuador. Um, very powerful um, novena. This is the rundown. I thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time and your brilliance. Uh, please subscribe to Restoring the Faith Media uh, on YouTube and follow the page on Facebook, which I don't update because Facebook is shadow banning it. And uh, like us all on Twitter. Ryan's on Twitter. Brother Martin's on Twitter. Von Day Radio's on Twitter. Thank you again for joining us. Peter from the United Kingdom. Good night. Good night.